Welcome back, everyone, to Finance Podcast Week and our August roundtable with Justin Klein of Invest Talk, Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Show, Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners Podcast, and Robert Leonard from the Millennial Investing Podcast by the Investors Podcast Network, as they discuss what's been going on in the world of investing, and if we have time at the end, answer your questions. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week podcast channel to receive notifications in real time when we go live and to replay all the live streams from all of our events. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our panelists of this live stream and host Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Podcast. Hello and welcome. Well, thank you. You know, I, I knew I was going to be on this panel. I did not know that I was hosting this. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> that is actually a surprise to me. Let me pull up the uh, email that you sent with the, um, with the talking point. All right. Well, thank you all for, uh, for being here. Um, I am apparently your host, Eric Schlein. I run the Intelligent Investing uh, Podcast. I think to start, let's just have everyone in the roundtable um, you know, go around and introduce who you are and, and, and maybe share a very brief uh, summary of, of your show, and then we can go from there. All right, sounds good. I'm, uh, I'm Justin Klein, uh, host of Invest Talk. Uh, we air every weekday um, at a station in Silicon Valley, but also uh, podcast. Uh, take, take that show and podcast it every, every weekday as well. It's a, more of a call-in show. People call in, ask questions. What do you think of a stock? What do you think of the market? What do you think about real estate, et cetera? Um, also, registered investment advisors, so we manage uh, client accounts for hundreds of, uh, of uh, wealthy individuals, uh, and we're located in uh, Southern California. So uh, that's who I am, and I'm excited to be here and talk a little about a little bit about inflation, real estate, uh, talk about uh, general investing environments, and maybe some tips for some beginners as well. Cool. Well, I am Andrew Sather. I am one of the co-hosts for the Investing for Beginners podcast. Uh, I grew up, born and raised in Southern California, so I have that in common with you there. Um, but basically, Dave and I were just trying to kind of preach the gospel when it comes to um, teaching people about value investing and trying to make it into an approachable topic. Um, we're big value investing guys, um, but we also like to take a very long-term approach. and Just try to find companies that are good businesses that we can see compounding our wealth for the very long term. And so that's what we do each week. And we our, our show is basically just listener questions and we just answer people's questions all day long. And so that's what we do. 
I'm Robert Leonard from the Investors Podcast. I host two shows. In, we have it in one feed, but it's two different segments. One is called Millennial Investing, where we help newer investors learn how to invest in the stock market, uh, help manage their personal finances, and potentially even start a side hustle. And then the second segment of the show is called Real Estate 101, where we help new real estate investors. You don't have to be a millennial. You could be any new investor looking to get your first or first few deals. So anywhere from zero to say five or six deals uh, under your belt for your real estate portfolio. All right. All right. Great guys. And just to share who I am a little bit, um, you know, my name's Eric Schlein. I, as Norma said, I am, I run the um, intelligent investing podcast um, on through Podbean, uh, and they have been such a wonderful host to, um, to me. And then, uh, you know, I do run an investment management firm, Grand Estate Capital Management. And, you know, just to reiterate, anything shared today is not, you know, should not be taken as uh, investment advice and to always do your own due diligence. So one of y'all brought up the, um, the, this, this, uh, the inflation theme. And, 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 you know, for those listening, you probably have heard in the news, right? There are fears of inflation. The, you know, the government has been printing money. Um, what are your guys' views on inflation? You know, what do you guys see going on? And is that impacting, you know, your investment strategies at all going forward? People are. Well, I think big picture, uh, it has to uh, impact your decision making process. Um, you know, what we have now is fiscal dominance in full effect. Uh, we've over the past 30 plus years, we've had uh, more of an economy driven by monetary dominance, meaning you know, the Fed coming in and trying to stimulate economic activity by lowering rates, doing QE, et cetera. And they're kind of at the end of the rope and they're kind of a sideshow uh, now instead of the main event and uh, that, they've, that they've been. Um, and this is very similar to where we were uh, late 40s, 50s, where uh, the Fed did yield curve control and the government came in and did a lot of uh, fiscal spending and infrastructure spending uh, that, that really drove the economy uh, then. So this is not uh, something that, that's new. We've seen this before. Um, and it's really a natural progression of uh, what Ray Dalio popularized as the long-term debt cycle. And uh, that's where we are, and that's uh, the environment that we live in. And you can you can love it or hate it, but um, that looks like the reality uh, for the foreseeable future, and you need to uh, invest accordingly. And, and when you say invest accordingly, what does that look like for you in, in that kind of environment? Sure. I mean, they're, they're, it means uh, interest rates will, will stay low and probably real rates will be negative. Uh, inflation will, will run hot and they'll be happy. Uh, happy. The, 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 the governments will be happy that that happens because they're going to try to inflate away the debt. Uh, and so in, in a rising uh, inflationary environment, uh, you, you likely have a lower dollar and you have uh, better markets for things like commodities, uh, industrials, financials uh, generally. Um, so value investing, and you've seen that really since the summer of last year, is starting to become more in vogue again, uh, which it hasn't been since really uh, 2007. So uh, that's that's really the shift is uh, the, the, the outperformance of uh, hard assets and the value side of, of the markets as opposed to you know the story stocks and the growth stocks. Yeah, yeah. Now, who, who would like to add to that? I mean, I could talk all day long about that. I just, <laughs> it's really what, what do you want to focus on, right? And so I, I think kind of to that point, if, if we think about if it does turn into a value, finally starts to outperform growth again, you have to think that 
interest rates rising from here would probably play a role in that because um, if inflation does run too hot, you would think logically that some of the governments would have to try to taper some of that off. And I think there's talks of that now and there's kind of this dichotomy between some people think the Fed should start to raise rates because in, you know because employment situation starts to look better while you know other views say that we need to keep it low because you have some parts of the economy which don't seem to be recovering as much as others and so it's it's still pretty uncertain even though um, we kind of hoped to be towards a more clear path out of this recovery it's there's still a lot of factors that are up in the air yeah now andrew you're, you're not someone that tends to fear uncertainty in the stock market are you Sorry, somebody just tried calling me. Could you repeat? <laughs> oh, no worries. I was going to say, you don't seem like the kind of person, you know, because we, we have done uh, you know, shows together before that you, you seem to welcome uncertainty when you, when you look at um, investment decisions in terms of you don't need to know exactly how things plays out. I mean, are you, is inflation for you something that has influenced your decision making or is it more of one of these you know, you accept certain levels of of uncertainty, but it hasn't really impacted the way you invest. Yeah, I would say it's it's more towards the latter. Um, I think you want to have you want to have exposure to different developments that are going on through the world, but you can't you can't reasonably cover all of them. And so for me, I kind of have to resign to the fact that like I'm going to miss out on a lot of opportunities, but. You know, I, I weigh that against what's what's my alternative. So for me, it looks like um, trying to pick the best businesses and paying a reasonable price for them. So having that uncertainty can be my friend because that can make a great business trade more at a discount. Um, but what that looks like across sectors and across industries and across stocks is going to differ with every environment and um, every time period. And so you're right. I don't. I don't necessarily change my strategy, but I do have to think about it because it does affect sure. any any stock that you have. Sure. Well, uh, right. I mean, it, it would affect general business, and if you are, you know, owning uh, if you're owning shares in, in businesses, it certainly would have an effect. Um, have any of you ever read the book uh, "The Dondo Investor" by Monish Pabrai? Absolutely. No. Yeah, there's a there's a concept in that book where he talks about this, uh, you know, uh, low risk, high uncertainty, and you know, it seems you know the uncertainty factor around inflation has, has been a theme. And one of the things he says is that stock markets tend to um, underprice uncertainty and 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 often overvalue uh, certainty. So. You know, it's sometimes it could be when people are afraid that something is going to happen, whether it actually does or it doesn't, that things could end up trading at a discount uh, because of that uncertainty. People people get afraid of uncertainty, and they, you know, Andrew, I think what you said about you know focusing on buying, you know, great businesses that, um, if I if I heard this right, would would still do okay in an inflationary environment if you can buy those at a good price, might be the way to go. Yeah, because I mean, generally, to be a good business, you've, you've got to have a way to generate revenue growth outside of just growing at all costs. And so a lot of times with a lot of businesses, that looks like pricing power. Mm -hmm. So if you have pricing power, then you can push 
a lot of the inflation costs and a lot of those pressures you're feeling towards your business, you can just push them to your customers. And if your customers are still happy to buy from you, then you're going to do pretty well in inflation where the problem can come up. And something that uh, we were talking about a little bit before the, the live stream here is if you're someone like a consumer staples, you might have a more difficult time passing that along because if people people are trying to you know buy something cheaply and and they don't they won't buy laundry detergent sure. because they're looking for the value laundry detergent um, that could that could that could cause problems for a little for a little while for some of these businesses well, going back going back to your uh, uncertainty uh, question I think that that uh, just kind of reminds me of the the pendulum uh, idea of, of markets and how uh, optimism and pessimism swing from one side of the pendulum to another and often hit extremes. And so, you know, there, there are definitely pockets of the market today where um, that that uh, uncertainty uh, is undervalued uh, and other parts where it's maybe overvalued, maybe the, the, the tech space and some of the high multiple um, growth at all costs type companies, the, the, the market's overpricing the certainty that they will remain the, the leader within a particular uh, sector you know, is Facebook always going to be the social media leader? Is Google always going to be the search leader? Is Uber always going to be the leader in uh, in ride sharing, etc.? Are those are those as certain as reality? Um, it's yet to be seen, but I I could see that being um, quite the opposite, where um, the market's overvaluing how certain those businesses are versus um, you know the the uncertainty of, of maybe the commodities market, where uh, supply is continuing to become. Uh, New supply coming on is is uh, being constrained by things like ESG that uh, are are pushing boards to reinvest in not new um, new new supply but in green energy and other things that um, maybe aren't going to be as um, in demand or as economical as uh, current commodities. So uh, I think that's something to consider in an environment where fiscal policy is so dominant and infrastructure is going to be a main driver for economic growth going forward. So where, where do you guys see some of the op- opportunity that is showing up in markets, whether it's, whether it's, you know, stocks or real estate or you know, any kind of in, in investment alternatives, uh, where, where do you see there could be some opportunities right now um, in the midst of uncertainty? Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunities, um, but there's different uh, sectors. I, I can't say specific companies, but um, I can go with kind of general themes. Commodities, I do think, are, are going to be um, very strong for uh, a longer period of time. Each commodity has its own kind of dynamics. Um, but one I really like are grocers. Um, they, they, they don't have the dramatically rising costs uh, like the restaurants do. If you think of the push towards a $15 minimum wage, uh, the input cost, the cost of cleaning a, a restaurant nowadays, it's so much uh, higher than it has been in the past. And the, the gulf between the cost of eating at home versus eating out uh, is uh, as wide as it's almost ever been. Um, so I think that's a great area. Industrials in a time where there's a weak dollar, uh, government spending, they tend to do uh, very well. And I think there's a lot of smaller technology companies that have a lot better growth potential and profitability than most of the, the big thing names that everyone talks about and everyone loves. Uh, but there are some great franchises of very small companies with way longer uh, roadway for, for growth uh, than some of those more mature tech names. Interesting. 
uh, anyone else have any any views on where they see opportunity, either on a more general lens or if they want to drill down and talk about a few names? I personally, a trend I've liked for the last few years has, and, and probably my biggest investments have been in the fintech space. And I continue to like that. I don't really, I'm not an investor that focuses on macro macroeconomic things much. I don't really focus on inflation too, too much, but I do try to look at companies that are going to get crushed due to rising inflation and a trend that I think is going to continue to do well over the next five to 10 years is some of the fintech, the largest fintech players. I won't go into any specific names, but I think a lot of people know who those are. And so for me, I really still am looking forward to that, the fintech trend. Got it. Uh, uh, Andrew, would you, would you like to go into any specific names? Uh, maybe I could rock the boat. I I think some of the bigger tech names are actually, they actually might be a decent value because since the start of the pandemic, um, a lot of, they were the ones getting bid up. There was a lot of this flight to safety because everybody was freaked out about this uncertainty. So everybody piled into the big tech. And, you know, some of them have continued to, to rise along with the market. But some of the growth rates on these guys, like Microsoft and Google, um, you know, anybody with tech, uh, cloud exposure, it's it's just astonishing how they're getting, you know, twenty percent plus growth or you know, double digit growth at the size that they are. And I guess the question becomes, how much of their tech is sustainable or not? Like somebody like a Microsoft, where their cloud infrastructure is becoming something that everybody is building their business on something like 95% of the fortune 500 runs on some part of Microsoft's cloud. And so, you know, you wonder with, with interest rates again, kind of coming down a little bit, the price, the fair price on some of these um, might not seem as extreme as they did in the past. And so, you know, either, Either you buy into these and you're late to the game because it was all priced in, and then they're going to plateau from here. But you know that could be one possibility. But another possibility is that the fact of the matter that they are so ingrained, like cloud is a perfect example, so ingrained with everything that every business does. You know they're going to grow alongside the economy, and at the growth that they're being priced right now. They don't need to grow that much higher than the economy to continue to justify the valuations, which I, I, I never really subscribed to until I saw just how crazy the numbers were coming out of the pandemic. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, there was, um, I forget who wrote it, but there was a paper that came out in the mid nineties and, you know, it was all on uh, technological S curves, and you know they showed that you know if you look at say like you know automobiles and radio, right? There was these very long adoption rates, and it was always that you know as they got bigger, you know they they had more competition, margins went down, it cost more to advertise, right? It, would, it, it it's much easier to have an early adopter in your local town than it is to run some gigantic commercial. You know, once once the business is more mature, but what the article was talking about is how there's these new kinds of businesses that we've never really seen before in the history of the world, 
where the bigger they get, um, the better they get, and, and and it actually becomes cheaper uh, to grow, right? I mean, if you look at you know some, one of you all mentioned um, you know like Facebook and Google and Uber, right? Where you know you could say that Facebook and Google are you know look at Facebook, right? One of the you could say in some ways it's one of the largest advertising businesses in the world, but there's no no one writing content there, and Uber might be the largest cab company in the world, but they don't even own a fleet. Um, and the bigger they get, you know, the harder it is to compete with them. So it's, it's a very different kind of business. So Andrew, on your point, right, it could be that as these businesses get better, uh, get bigger, they continue to get better. And then we might see those growth rates for longer, which then those multiples actually turn out to look super, super cheap. Right. And, and you got to have that long-term time horizon to make that a sustainable kind of thing. You know, if, if I think about, you know, so I just recently went long again on Microsoft, so I'll use them as an example. Um, if I look at what I want out of an investment like that, I have to see their cloud business as being a huge part of their revenue driver moving forward 10, 15 years out. And so, you know, if this is something that somebody can come in and, and disrupt, something like um, like you saw in the in the dot-com bubble where all the technology was all brand new, but a lot of it was still up in the air where um, somebody could have come in and, and completely changed the way a lot of like IT looked. Even IT has changed from hardware to the cloud. Um, and so I guess when it comes to the, the business's infrastructure for somebody like Microsoft, that's hard to replace. I mean, like how, how do you replace the railroads um, when they first reach scale? I, I kind of see a similar dynamic in that way, but you know, at the multiples they're at now, could we see a correction to to have them trade maybe a little more towards historical norms? That would probably be the case. In which case, yeah, then I paid too high of a price. But if we're looking 10, 15 years, then that becomes less and less likely as long as it can continue to be like the one of the main cloud infrastructure companies, which well, at the scale they're at now, it seems like it, it's a pretty good chance. Yeah, well, I, th I think uh, using the analogy of railroads is a, is a bit different uh, because I do think there are a lot of great smaller companies that have, um, you know, they can hit similar scale uh, at some point uh, and maybe I innovate them as well. You know, think of BlackBerry and Apple back in the early 2000s. BlackBerry was killing it. They had the dominant smartphone and then Suddenly, Apple came out, out, innovated them, and basically crushed them overnight. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but in the technology space, that is uh, it's always the always a possibility. Number two is you, you spoke about you've never seen businesses like this before, and I think that's one of the reasons why Congress is having such a difficult time uh, uh, regulating uh, the tech space is because a uh, it's filled with a lot of people that uh, don't understand technology very well because they're probably over the age of seventy, um, uh, and they they don't know how to apply antitrust laws to these type of companies. So I definitely think, um, you know, with the appointment of Lena Khan and, and, and the, the type of um, administration that you're seeing um, with uh, the FTC, et cetera, uh, that's, that puts a big risk on a lot of these big names that they could be uh, broken up, especially the Googles of the world, the Amazons. I think those are, are probably the two most at risk because of uh, the data that they collect and the way they use that data in oftentimes an abusive way, 
um, and and the potential for them to easily separate um, out their different businesses, YouTube from search, for example, um, Amazon from Amazon Cloud, um, you know, even even Facebook and, and, and separating Facebook with, from Instagram, et cetera. And I think there's there's a lot of uh, there's, there's increasing regulatory risk for a lot of those names as well. Yeah, those are, those are some really good points. I think it was um, Brayden Dennis. He's a guy we've had on our show a couple of times. He had a poll talking about, you know, which which tech firms would see the most unlock of value if they were split up. If you, you know, I guess it, it would depend on which company we're talking about, obviously. Of course, like yeah, they're maybe, all very different. Maybe you, maybe splitting YouTube and, and Google would hurt you would hurt YouTube because they would show up less in Google searches, possibly. But I mean, yeah, when, but, when but they it's, broke but up, it's the data that you're sharing that, that Google is is capturing from your Gmail, from your YouTube activity, from your search activity, you know, and they're 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 sharing that across their platform, which strengthens every each individual piece of their business, and so uh, and so that's that's the difficult it's that that scale you're talking about when you have all these different ways of getting business and getting data and utilizing that data at scale that becomes that giant, almost impossible competitive advantage to, to overcome. And that's why I think the governments are having trouble regulating and understand the vast impact that all of these businesses have and uh, the interconnectedness of them all. I don't know if, any, if, if we could even reasonably know unless we worked inside the companies ourselves because For sure, yeah. how many people are going to YouTube because you know they have it on their phone or it's on their TV versus how many are being I don't want to say manipulated, but maybe pushed towards it because of all the data that's being collected. It's one of those very opaque concepts that we just we can't even know. So I well, guess you know well, if you're comfortable it's, it's, with if government's getting you know government's focusing on it more, and I think you're getting younger and younger people focusing on it that can grasp it and get the right people from those companies to testify and gather the right data. So it absolutely is difficult, but I think they're getting closer to understanding. It. I'll throw one last little tidbit to this, and then I'll shut up. The uh, oh, this is the, great. Please <laughs> elaborate. I, I'd like to go in the weeds on these panels. That's fantastic. Um, the I, I guess to to confer, like to talk about if a breakup would be good or not. If I if you looked back at when they broke up Big Bell, and they they when AT and T was like the technology giant of its day. And they broke them down into the, the little Ma Bells or whatever they were called. So they basically localize them. And I, I realize that's different because you're talking about geographical region instead of something as interconnected as data. But regardless, I mean, they still, even broken up, had such a great moat that somebody did a back test and sh showed that if you were just to hold AT&T and then you had every Ma Bell split off and you continue to hold those, you still would have outperformed the S&P or, or the Dow or whatever the benchmark was back then. Because, I mean, just some business modes are so strong even after being broken up like that. But I do, that is certainly the counter argument, right? Where if you look at, say, Amazon, right? Like, what is AWS worth outside of, of um, you know, that business if it's a standalone entity? Um, right. So I've seen some models, right? Well, you'll value Google as as the different components of Google, or you'll value Amazon as the different components of Amazon. So anyway, re really interesting discussion. Um, just in terms of general investment ideas or investment themes, um, you know, what are you most excited for um, for the rest of twenty twenty one in in terms of um, you know where you're actually uh, putting your money or clients' money? 
And if you can give a little bit more analysis, I know we, we hinted at that around the inflation thing, but just in general. <clears throat> I know, Andrew, you brought up Microsoft. Um, does anyone else have either um, a specific uh, sector they'd want to talk a little bit more about or a specific company or a specific name? Well, I think commodities to me are uh, the most exciting um, in in this market uh, because they've been. How, how, how are you, so I, I know you said commodities, but how are you playing that? Are you, are you buying like a commodity fund? Or are you buying a basket of commodities? No, like, no indiv individual commodity uh, producers. Uh, okay. yeah, I think that those have the best operating uh, leverage, and so uh, most commodity producers. Uh, have a correlation of two or three times what uh, the underlying commodity price is, so uh, that's kind of the best bang for the buck if you're if you're right on the commodity side. Um, and I think with uh, ESG and what's happening there, you see what's going on with uh, Exxon. Um, BP did it uh, last year, where there's boards that come in um, and basically vote to not invest in in new infrastructure, uh, new supply of commodities, uh, and and that ultimately is typically the thing that corrects high commodity prices. The old saying is nothing is a cure. Nothing cures high commodity prices like high commodity prices because that brings on new supply. But if you have ESG coming in there and stopping the investment in new production, uh, that's no longer going to be the case. Um, and so uh, you, you have on top of that governments that are looking to stimulate the economy the best way they know how to do that is to spend on infrastructure besides giving people money which uh, you know i don't think is politically palatable um currently uh, it's more impactful to say okay we're going to build roads and bridges and new green infrastructure etc and change the world around us and that's going to take massive amounts of commodities uh and but they're not accounting for the the demand uh, or the supply that they're going to need to, to do that and um, on top of that, they're trying to move to a green economy when the, the demand for new energy or energy continues to go up, uh, both hydrocarbon energy uh, supply and green energy. And so they, they, they don't have a plan to kind of bridge that gap. And it's really going to take decades for us to, to transform uh, the world. And if you're not bringing on new supply of oil and natural gas, then you're going to run uh, short on supply very quickly. And I think that's going to be a theme of this decade is persistently high commodity prices because of uh, that demand side and also the lack of supply. So for people, with, you know, you say you're looking at individual commodity producers, what, what do you, you know, what do you look for in a commodity producer, you know, before you, you know, an investment, if you're not just buying a random basket of commodity producers or a random fund, what, what are you actually looking for in a commodity producer? Well, the first thing is good management that knows how to uh, invest and, and uh, produce in their particular space. And uh, those that have good cash flows, typically dividend and dividend growth, uh, obviously love, love that. Uh, and then it's the specific commodity. And every commodity has its own kind of supply demand dynamics. Uh, for example, lith everyone loves lithium because of uh, uh, batteries and electric cars, etc. But lithium is, is very abundant. It's very easy to find, very easy to bring on supply. Whereas copper, which is also a, a big part of uh, building electric cars and uh, solar panels, et cetera, that takes a lot longer to bring supply on. And so uh, those that already have the infrastructure there to, uh, to, to bring 
a new co copper supply on market, they're going to be the ones that are capturing most of those gains. Uh, another is uranium. I think uh, having the, the growth of nuclear power around the world, China is building tons of nuclear power plants, and demand is going to uh, uh, far exceed uh, supply in the coming years. Uh, I think the those that have installed uranium production are going to do very well as, uh, also. So those are the types of things that I'm looking at that are really going to be needed if we're going to transform our economy from uh, hydrocarbon based to uh, fully green, uh, or at least mostly green, but that's going to take decades and it's going to take some bridge commodities like uranium to make sure that we have the energy uh, in the meantime as we build more solar panels, etc. So if you can find where you know, their commodity producers, good management, not just exciting for 2021, but you see this as, as long-term plays. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is this is something that's going to be a multi-decade process. This green energy revolution is not going to happen in, in 6, 12, or 18 months. This is going to be more like 6, 12, or 18 years. Okay, so uh, you have to really have that, that longer-term time horizon and be, be on the lookout for uh, doing your research and, and finding those companies that do have that track record of consistent, strong uh, profitability uh, through up and down cycles. And, and those will be the best investments longer term. Very interesting. And for the other two of you on the panel, do you guys have any uh, thoughts or comments or insights on? on I, have a, I have a question. So are you looking at capacity too? Or is it like, where does capacity come into the analysis? Is it like factor in or is it more, are you looking more at like supply and demand? Are you talking about on the uh, individual commodity producers? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Commodity uh, uh, supply or capacity is, is very important. Uh, you know, there's, I can't say which company it is, but it's the largest uh, uranium producer in the world. They're out of Canada. Uh, and right now, uh, they're, they're not producing at, at a high clip um, because the, currently there's a bit of an oversupply of uh, uranium in the market. But uh, very soon that uh, deficit is going to go away. Uh, and there's only a handful of uh, uh, there's only a handful of companies in the world that have the capacity to uh, start producing uh, at an economical rate, and they're they are one of them. And so, capacity to bring on new supply in the face of higher prices is definitely going to be uh, important uh, as well. And having that installed base, because going out and permitting new supply is going to be very difficult in the political climate that we're in. You're seeing that you're seeing that in semiconductors right now too, where you know the shortages have been so grotesque, and you know the automakers are just dying to get some chips. But because there's such a limit on capacity, and capacity for semiconductors takes several years to develop, um, they expect these shortages to happen for a while. And so, to your point, I guess you know if you have this long-term investment in, you have the capacity in there. If the market's pricing you like, like just based on what you're producing, they're not pricing you based on what your capacity could be. Then once the demand hits, it's almost like a catalyst to push your mm -hmm. stock price higher. Once they recognize, once it's recognized that the capacity can be filled, and I guess that's where your yeah. operating leverage comes in, right? Yeah, exactly, and and that's why if I'm looking the commodity space or the, the semiconductor space, I'm, I'm definitely looking at uh, the companies that build uh, production equipment. Uh, that have the foundries uh, that can that can produce. Um, I think uh, from a technological standpoint, you see that that's the industry that that moves the most. Just look at, at Apple and their 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 chips. You know they they've been building uh, their their technology over the last uh, decade or so, 
and in many ways they've surpassed uh, some of the existing uh, companies that are that are producing uh, mobile chips and uh, I think that is probably the biggest risk for some of the, the bigger commodity or uh, semiconductor producers is being out innovated by uh, their competitors because uh, as you know that technology moves very very fast it moves very fast and it's pretty asset light too and so mm -hmm. somebody with a lot of capital like a big tech company could and has been hiring engineers to to make those designs rather than outsourcing them to some of the more traditional companies yeah and that's where you're seeing intel struggle where uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're trying to do both uh, and be asset heavy and uh, that's why i think they're struggling the good thing is uh, no longer the uh, i think it was an ex cfo that was the ceo uh, they, they just hired uh, the next cto and so uh, hopefully that will get them back on track and uh, it'll also be interesting to see how government comes in and tries to stimulate domestic uh, semiconductor production and and what type of incentives uh, they give to uh, to have that happen here but that's also going to take many years to build those types of factories here in the u.s and, and they don't happen overnight yeah uh, i mean eric to answer your question you're asking what kind of things to, to be excited at for the mm -hmm. latter half of the year and it's just it's so hard to choose because i don't there's just been so much rapid change in such a short time period that I think the market and pretty much everybody is still trying to digest everything. And we're trying to figure out what's kind of more like a short term pressure and what's something that's indicative of something that's changed for the long term. I mean, we've talked previously on your show about how I've been pounding the table on U.S. residential real estate, uh, a company I did. I followed the earnings call and they just did it last week and they said U.S. Uh, home starts, the total U.S. home starts in the country is up something around 40% year over year and even higher sequentially compared to quarter one. And so, you know, that's a trend that's that was hot in 2020. It's continuing to be hot in 2021. You have the semiconductor shortage, which is causing its own thing. And then some of the inflation related stuff like we were talking about with logistics and freight. I mean, I feel every month I'm, I'm finding a different opportunity. And it, for me personally, it comes down to, you know, trying to find the best businesses that have a decent position to hit any of those yep. kind of secular drivers. And so it's hard to pin down on one or two companies when there's so much change in such a short period of time. Andrew, do you, do you find that those opportunities are being priced in or do you, do you see there's opportunities like that where it really is not being priced into the, the stock price? It's both. And I think, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's tough. It's, it's both. I think there's a lot of, like, I, I could see commodities being pretty undervalued. Um, I, have, I have a lumber... They're not so much a, a producer, but they're a distributor and they're right in the middle of that value chain and they're just seeing unprecedented demand and, you know, insane growth rates, but everybody is pricing it like this is just a one-time thing. And what, um, what company is that? Uh, lumber. Oh, oh, like just, you're talking about the commodity lumber. Yeah. Got yeah, but, but I'm talking about a, a company who deals inside of that and they're a distributor. They're like the middleman in there. Can you, can you say what company that is? Sure, uh, UFP, UFPI. They just rebranded themselves to UFP Industries. So they saw like a something like a doubling in revenue mm -hmm. um, 
on top of like big, big growth in 2020. And then they doubled on top of that. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you've had, you've had like a price bubble in lumber itself, mm -hmm. but a company like UFP industries, they yeah, say more about them. T tell me a little bit how you value the business a little bit more about that company. I, you know, for, for listeners of this round table, you know, we're going to be doing this monthly and you know, people want to hear, uh, how they could actually imply these in, you know, apply these insights into their own life. And again, not investment advice, but just to give them some ideas or potential options, which they can do themselves or talk to their financial advisor about. So, you know, in terms of playing lumber or that company, just talk a little bit more about valuation of that business. Okay. Well, they're, they're being, they're being valued still pretty low. So like when I look at a cyclical company like them, you know, I don't want to take last year's or this year's earnings and just extrapolate that into the future because obviously you have boom and busts within the cycle and you don't want to assume that the boom's going to happen forever because it's not. But at the same time, if a company is shown that they have a good track record over the long term, like a company like UFPI, they've had pretty high returns on capital over the last 10 years if you average them out. And just the way that they're, it's like they're a big fish in a small pond. And although like they have lumber exposure, they're not going to follow lumber prices one-to-one -one because they have to buy lumber just like they have to sell lumber. But where they make their money is if there's a lot of demand because they can just, they can just turn around a lot of inventory and it's, it's basically, you know, a huge volume game. And so for them, the question becomes, is residential real estate and any of the related construction to that is this is that something that's here to stay or is that just because people were cooped up during the pandemic and so everybody wanted to move but that's going to settle down yeah, that's I, that's an example of where the market's valuing it like this is a one-time thing where i'm i mean i'm happy to, to, to own the company regardless i've had i've added to them through the years i think i first started in 2017 so they're one of those dividend growers, again, good returns on capital, and they've always been pretty cheaply valued. Some of that comes to being cyclical. And so, you know, moving forward, if, if they can continue to get the demand, obviously they're, it's, it's going to be one of those event you would hope eventually rated at a higher multiple because people recognize that this is a secular trend and not something short term. Yeah, it's I think the, the, big, the, big, the big question on the, the there, there is definitely some sec, good secular trends. Uh, do, you, do you consider what's happening with the rent and eviction moratorium and what that will do to uh, supply of, of existing homes over the next uh, couple of years? Because clearly that has been a huge driver of the lack of supply of existing homes. And so the, the demand or the supply of, of new homes is higher than it would otherwise because uh, these new home builders don't really have anything else to compete with besides other new homes. And so there's been very, very strong demand for all these raw materials like, like, like lumber. Um, and obviously there's this fight over the eviction and rent moratorium and, and when will, will that be lifted and how much supply will that bring on of existing uh, inventory uh, so that uh, maybe those, uh, the demand for new homes may not be quite as strong. I do think there are great secular uh, tailwinds um, but short to medium term, I think that's the biggest thing that's up in the air over the next year or so. Yeah, and I guess I have the luxury of being able to not worry about it so much because I'm looking at the very long term. But you could bring up a good point is if you're looking at 
the next two, three, five years, how does that rent moratorium going away affect the supply? And also, you know, how much does um, baby boomer downsizing kind of play into that as well? There's no facts behind this, but, you know, I, I remember watching a rocker, rocket mortgage uh, commercial where it was basically implying that the, the lady that was in it was single and, and had a dog and wanted to get a big house, you know, with a bigger yard for, for her dog versus being stuck in an apartment or something. And so you wonder, you know, there was a big growth with everybody wants to talk about Warren Buffett and Geico. And a huge reason they did so successfully was because everybody went from a two, two you know, it was a single car family to, to two car family. And so with, with, these, with these single family homes, you know, do we see more buyers who are single possibly buying homes than we have historically? And does that create a whole new total addressable market than we would have expected when everybody kind of follows household formation when they're trying to project how many homes we will have? Um, is it possible that we're looking at the wrong way? So really nobody knows the answer to these questions. Um, and there, there are valid struggles moving forward, valid pressures, and there are also valid reasons to be bullish. Um, when I look at a company like that, as long as they have a strong balance sheet and they return good amounts on capital, I'm happy to hold them for the long term. I think the, the biggest uh, secular driver is, is not just the, the millennials uh, generation getting older and, and into home buying uh, age, which uh, the average millennials kind of right in that, that wheelhouse now, um, but is the work from home trend. And, and mm -hmm. uh, that definitely drove uh, a lot of demand uh, early in the pandemic, but I think that will drive demand consistently for bigger homes with uh, uh, probably instead of an average bedroom of three, it's probably going to be three and a half or four because that's going to be uh, turned into an office to work from home. So, uh, and you see that with the new home construction, it's they're, they're not buying, uh, not building starter homes. They're building uh, four or five bedroom homes with, with high price tags, uh, not only because they have high commodity prices, but uh, because the demand for uh, that extra room is there, uh, especially in those uh, gateway markets, uh, not the coast, but you know, kind of in the middle of the country that are a lot cheaper and more affordable. And I think that uh, that trend will, will only continue. Well, you need, a, you need a room for the office. You need a room for your home gym. Right? And then maybe a room for the doggies. So that's, that's more rooms than we've needed in the past. Well, speak, speaking of more, uh, you know, all of us, some background noise of some point. You know, a lot of us have millennials listening to our shows. I know on my podcast, there's it's quite a large percentage of my listeners are in the millennial generation, and you know, a lot of our, you know, my generation as a millennial um, are still beginners uh, when it comes to actually investing, and a lot of them are really starting to take a real serious look at okay, what's my future? What's my investment future for? For people who are just getting into investing, who might hear our, you know, this commodities conversation we're having, be like, I don't really know if I, that might seem a little risky. What if it doesn't work out? I don't know if I have the, the, uh, the capacity to, to really understand this. What, are, what are some safe bets for, for people just getting into investing to, um, to start, you know, some long term bets? What, do, what do you tell, what do you guys tell people who are just getting into investing? Where, where, where do you go? It can be very confusing for people. 
better. Um, first off, nothing is low risk. So, you know, I think nothing, if you want safe, you have CDs. <laughs> um, but even in this environment with uh, real rates negative, that, that also is a risk as well. Um, but what, what I first say is that uh, first understand the type of investor you are. Uh, a lot of millennial investors get excited about story stocks that are typically tech related. They understand it. Uh, the growth is there. There's a lot of those growth at all costs type of companies. Or, or even there. the meme stocks too. And the meme, yeah, the meme stocks, you know what I mean? And they have to understand what that is. You know, meme stock, uh, that's just uh, gambling and it's a game. And as long as people play the game, then it'll probably keep going. Um, but what my best, my best uh, uh, advice would simply be to learn about other parts of the market. There are other great companies in uh, the industrial space and in packaged foods and uh, all across the, the market. And, uh, just because maybe you've done well in, in some tech stocks doesn't mean that you can't do, do well in other parts of the market. And if you want to have longevity uh, in the investing world, you need to understand uh, other sectors of the market and be able to identify opportunities because tech stocks, growth stocks, the story stocks won't always be in favor. Uh, there will be times where commodities will be more in favor or uh, industrial companies, et cetera, and you need to be prepared to find those uh, type of opportunities. So continue to learn and don't just focus on one sector because it's the most interesting or exciting. You know, uh, my co-host Dave always says on the show how if you're just starting out and you're trying to figure out investing and the stock market, there's so much jargon and so many different words. Just think about it the way you would try to eat a pizza. You don't eat a pizza all at once, but you know, hopefully you take bites and hopefully you're, you're just doing a couple slices at a time. And so really with, with investing in stock markets, it's very similar. It, another way you can think about it, it's like learning a language. Nobody learns a language overnight. The only way you really learn a language is find some good resources to teach you and then just immerse yourself. And over time, you start to build those skills. We always talk about like just getting your feet wet. Like if you haven't taken any action, just take that first step and buy something. At least it will put you from a spectator to an owner, and then you can start to learn things as you go along. And so, you know, I think we all have great podcasts that people can tune into, and there's just so much great free information that people can learn from. Just figure out what's interesting to you at first and follow that, and don't worry about figuring it all out. I mean, even Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time, he talks about how things are out of his circle of competence all the time. So he doesn't know everything about everything, but he just knows what he knows very well. And that's done very well for him. And there's no reason why any average investor can't do the same. Yeah, I like that. Let's take, go to a diff bunch of different sources. So, like so many people want to focus on one thing. And I liked your advice about bringing in uh, a lot of uh, expertise from various parts and, and taking all in and absorbing it over time. You're never going to learn it overnight. I typically recommend people get started with index funds. And from there, if you want to have a little bit of exposure, I recommend you put small amounts of money to, to get started in individual picks if that's something you're interested in. And if you do that, I usually highly recommend that people only do that with companies and things that they understand. And I never, I never say what that has to be. If somebody comes to me and says they really want to invest in Dogecoin or AMC or GameStock or something along those lines. I don't really give them any flack for doing that. I just highly recommend that they fully understand what they're investing in. But for the majority of their money, especially if they're new, I typically 
I recommend them looking towards index funds. And then from there, if they want some individual holdings, just take small amounts of money to do that and really stick to things, uh, as someone said, uh, that are within your circle of competency and at least understand what you're buying. Yeah. Are there, are there yeah. any books that you, you recommend uh, for someone who wants to, say, start going from index funds to individual stocks and say, hey, you know, do you have a book or two that I could read to get some more bearing on that? Do you, anything like that for you? Yeah, so I actually recommend everybody takes this approach before they, they get started investing, whether the, especially if they're new, but or if they even if they have a little bit of experience. What I always recommend people do, and this is mostly to listeners of the podcast or, or even just people I know who are newer investors, I always recommend them, they buy two books. I recommend that they buy uh, Bogle's book, I believe it's the little book on uh, common sense investing, and then also... Uh, Eric, you mentioned it earlier, The Dondo Investor. I usually recommend that people buy both of those books before they invest any money. Read them both. doesn't matter which order. Just read them both and then see which one speaks to you more. And if you know Bogle's approach really, really speaks to you, then don't worry about what you read in The Dondo Investor and just go with the index funds and just continue to go that route. If The Dondo Investor really, really spoke to you, then maybe include some of that in your portfolio, do more of that, but still have a little bit of exposure to index funds, or maybe do a combination of the two. But at least by reading those two books, it gives you an understanding of really two of the most popular strategies or, or approaches you, you can start with and then dive in from there. Thank you. And what about the other two? Yeah. Any, any books you guys recommend for people just starting off? I always think uh, my, my, one of my favorites is to start big picture as opposed to kind of learning the, the basics. Um, and it's Think and Grow Rich is one of my favorites. It just creates a good mindset uh, for you uh, to be able to continue to think positive as well as to save. Um, and that's something that we don't talk about here because saving is kind of boring, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but if you're a millennial investor, a new investor, the habit of saving is far more important than anything else you can do at this point. Uh, is to make sure that you're constantly putting money away, whether that's in your 401k, IRA, brokerage account, whatever that is. Um, and I think that is uh, that, that'll that'll start you off on the right foot, so that you continue to to utilize the things that you do do learn uh, over time. And always, my first uh, book that I ever read was *Beating the Street* by Peter, Peter Lynch, and and that goes back to kind of uh, your circle of competency and, and sticking with that to start with, and then you branch off from there as you learn going forward. I think Lynch is also a great writer as well. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. That was literally my first book I read about mm -hmm. investing. And that was what I was going to say that I recommend for people because it's he writes it, he writes it in such a non-technical way. And it's just so interesting whether you know about stocks or not. So he just does a great job of outlining, you know, even how his wife's trips to the mall helped give him an investment idea. And it's just a very approachable book. So I like it a lot. And if you find that you don't like this kind of stuff he talks about, then definitely just go towards the index funds. And I think Lynch too is a really good combination because, you know, it, it's, you know, even Buffett would say like, you know, he's met Lynch and like they definitely differ in a lot of ways, but they can respect each other's investment styles. I think Lynch is kind of a great combination of, you know, he obviously diversified a lot. Uh, also very hands-on sees, you know, gets at a, you know, a stock as a, piece of a business, but it's a nice variation from say more of what, you know, Buffett and Charlie Munger have done, even though they're still, you know, valuing security. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just chime in that, you know, 
in terms of individual stock picking, uh, I think a combination of reading Dondo Investor, anything by Peter Lynch, and then maybe you know something on Warren Buffett or even you know the Intelligent Investor gives people a nice variety of flavors of how to look at securities and kind of see what works best for them. Yeah, those are all fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, it's Norma, do you want to take it back? Yeah, absolutely. We're just we're just about on the hour. So thank you, everyone, for joining. And um, this has been fantastic, I think, in terms of where people can start investing, what's going on right now with inflation in the market. And we're just so happy that you all joined us. So I'm going to read our brief outro, and then we'll wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, The August Roundtable, with Justin Klein of Invest Talk, Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and The Eric Schlein Show, Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners Podcast, and Robert Lenner from the Millennial Investing Podcast by the Investor, the Investors Podcast Network, as they've discussed what's been going on in the world of investing. So for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. And we also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this roundtable on the channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can also see that we offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience here with Podbean Live. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you all again for joining us, and it's been a pleasure. Appreciate it, Norman. Absolutely. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Robert. And thank you so much, Eric. Thank you.